0: G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to our third episode of Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. Our theme for Series 6, taking the Australian ecosystem from good to great, continues with a special look into Australia's creative tech sector. And when it comes to creative tech in Australia, one woman sits squarely at the center, Chantal Abouchar. In this episode, we'll talk to Chantal about her decade-long journey to put creative tech on the map, culminating with the launch of the studio at the Sydney Startup Hub earlier this year. Then we'll chat with Ricky Sutton and Greg Moore, co-founders of Ovu, a creative tech startup that's building a foundation for the next generation of content delivery, even rivaling Netflix in their reach. Getting creative and growing strong on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by MYOB. Running a startup is pretty cool, but doing the books isn't. MYOB makes it easier. For your free trial, visit MYOB.com slash TWISTA. TWISTA is also sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by engaging, inspiring, and connecting-driven students. If you'd like to mentor, invest in, or support UTS startups, email startups at uts.edu.au. This December is going to be the 50th anniversary of the very first academic papers that laid the foundation for real-time 3D computer graphics. We get all of virtual and augmented reality and all video games and most of our modern interfaces just from that one paper. It's the kind of tech that enables creativity, so let's call that creative tech creative tech has powered the modern interface, everything from the Macintosh with its amazing ability to create beautiful books and illustrations to programs like Pro Tools which is used to mix every album today to tools like Final Cut which is used by filmmakers to create feature-length cinema. Creative tech is all of that and it's a lot more besides. Now one woman has done more than any other single individual to establish creative tech in Australia. Chantal Abouchar is the managing director of the studio at the Sydney's Startup Hub, the first dedicated creative tech facility in Australia and one of the first of its kind anywhere in the world. So to discuss creative tech and her journey to bring it to the centre of Australia's startup ecosystem, it's my great pleasure to welcome Chantal as a guest on This Week in Startups Australia. Chantal, welcome. Thank you, Mark. All right, Let's start with the basics. What is creative tech? How do you define it?
1: Okay, so I tend to think about, I tend to talk about creative tech and media tech really as, as as one and the same. So it's really about that that intersection between um, the creative industries, what we think of as creative industries, and the, and the tech sector. Creative industries have always been deeply connected to uh, the tech sector, but it's it's been framed in a very different way. So we can now think of uh, creative tech uh, startups as really important to uh, the industry as a whole.
0: Okay, so What we see then is rather than having the creatives over here in the corner sort of when they're called upon to help tech out with a design problem, what we actually see is that the creative focus is at the center of what the startup is, what the startup does and what the startup is offering as a service to other businesses.
1: Yeah, potentially, yeah. So so one of the other ways that I, I sort of talk about this is I say, well, look, if we think about the existing media and creative industries, we can think about all the different categories that already exist, traditional categories in those industries. So we can think about producers and directors and writers and journalists, and that we need to think about tech startups as a new industry category because it's it's this new industry category, uh, these tech startups creating the new business models, products and services. Um that will help to grow and future-proof the creative industries as a whole.
0: Okay, so when we talk about creative industries, both of us have a connection back to the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, the AFTRS. I was teaching there in the early 2000s and I'd been brought over from overseas to really help spark creative tech at the AFTRS because they didn't really have a strong program in it and they didn't really know how to get what was, I think, we wouldn't call it fuddy-duddy, perhaps rather traditional film, television, radio school to start to think digitally. And I came in and basically, after talking to all the disciplines, and they're all amazingly creative people, said, look, it, all we need to do is rather than delivering a 35mm film at the end, let's have them deliver that plus a DVD. And then they have to think digitally and in terms of creative digital media all the way through their process. Now, you came to AFTRS a few years later and decided that you wanted to make creative tech and the creative industries your calling card. Could you talk to us about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so I see education very much as a way to reset your internal compass. You know, how how am I, how do I want to live the next 10, 20 years of my life? And so I've actually been to AFTRS about every decade and every <laughs> decade I sort of reinvented myself in a way. So I didn't really have an end game in, 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 in sight. All I knew that I needed, that I wanted to do was I really wanted to reflect on the last 30 years of my own experience in the industry and that was really how my work practice had changed and been impacted by technology. How did I do that? How, how, how does one even begin to do that? And at the same time, I was actually had been involved in, the, in getting involved in the startup ecosystem and it was really through sort of really thinking quite deeply about what was going on in the startup world what where what my journey had been um that i then thought discovered accelerator programs as well and um and and thought well this could be a really good way to frame an investigation into my own experience because and by looking at an accelerator program i thought well this and, and an accelerator program within the media industry um i thought this would be a really good way to bring together all those elements—the creative, the business, and the tech.
0: So there was a very specific program, the Time Warner program. Now, did you actually Correct. go into that program?
1: No. So I looked at because people said, "Oh, you know, you you actually got all this research from all these startups in in the program." So so actually, I'll just backtrack a little bit. When I when I when the penny dropped after a, sort of a year of thinking about how can you, how can I frame this question. Um I realized it was then through accelerator programs that I thought would be a great way to investigate this this topic. And there are two there were two significant accelerator programs at the time. One was the BBC and one was Time Warner. I thought by looking at Time Warner's program, um, that it would give me more it would it provide more um, depth than than a BBC programme. And yes they're corporate programs, yes they look inward inwardly to the needs of the corporation. So that, that, that changes th- their focus, but, I, but there were still things that, that one could take from, from looking at these programs and, the, and what was actually going on. And so I looked at uh, the program had been going for, th- for three years by that stage. To confuse things a little bit, there was actually two programs, but I won't I won't go into too much detail. But I looked at the 30 startups that had gone through there and then did a deep sort of dive into 10 of them. Um, one of those was, was an Australian um, startup called Incoming Media with David McKeague, who is actually going to be the studio's uh, first entrepreneur in residence.
0: So it all comes home again. All right, so yeah. you, you studied the Time Warner program and – Then you said, well, actually, this is an interesting model. Maybe we need to think about what this means for Australia's creative industries.
1: Yeah, correct. Correct. So really the key finding was, and, you know, it's not groundbreaking, it's pretty obvious, but no one was really talking about it or framing it in this way.
0: But that means it wasn't obvious.
1: (laughs) I thought it would seem very obvious because, of course, there were already. But at the time that I did this research, which was 2013-14, yes, there were incubators that already existed, which was fish burners. There were Murudee. There was no accelerator program. Murray D had not started at that stage. It started during my research. Stone and Chalk also had not start, started during my research. When Stone and Chalk came along and Murray D came along, I thought, right, yeah, there's, there's something, you know, I could see how the ecosystem here was changing and building. And I said the creative industries need to be absolutely part of this.
0: Okay. So you wrote your Master's thesis on this. And I remember, do you remember what year it was that you called me? And then we sat down for like an hour and a half of a very good, fun, very intense interview where I gave you a lot of my own opinions on things.
1: I think you were early on. I feel a little bit embarrassed because I remember ringing you and, you know, I was still sort of trying to find my way. So it was maybe end of 2013. It was in the very early days. So five
0: five ish years ago, though. So about five ish years ago. All right. So we go from that, you you spend your time doing doing this report, you take a look at the accelerators that are going on. And, you know, keep in mind that accelerator programs, not just in creative tech, but even just five years ago, were not that common. Even Y Combinator was the one that everyone would tend to point to. And that was really one out of what was maybe going to be many. Mm. So we have a very early period of time. They generally don't have a focus. The ones at Time Warner have a focus. But you decide, okay, let's think about what it's going to take to turn this into an Australian program, what were the major findings in your thesis? Just simply that we should clone it or were there specific things that you said we needed to do differently here in Australia?
1: It was really this idea of framing it in such a way that to talk to the creative industries themselves, to to sort of say we need to think about tech startups as a really important category within the creative industries and in the same way that we foster and support and enable other categories... We need to do the same with tech startups. It was so, it was that simple. So,
0: for example, SaaS startups, deep tech startups, biotech startups. I mean, we can list them off and we sort of have this set frame in mind for what does that mean, what are their funding requirements, what's the investment climate like, what are the support networks for them. So what you're saying is, yes, we absolutely need all of those same things sort of lumped together around creative tech.
1: Mm. And it's also that idea that creative tech does not just belong to the creative industries. All those tools that one uses – um that normally would just think of sit within creative tech uh, can be applied across all industries. So, in terms of, you know, games, game development, we know, you know, health, de- deeply used in health, deeply used across all all other uh, industries. Let
0: me throw a small curveball at you because it occurs to me, Canva is effectively a creative tech company, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. All right, so one of Australia's unicorns, right? Yeah. We've got a couple of unicorns in this country. We've got Campaign Monitor. We have Atlassian, sort mm. of the big one. And we now have Canva, mm. but also Envato, which mm. is a creative marketplace. And so... You're- There's actually now one of some of the biggest success stories in Australia have been creative tech companies.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And Australia is a perfect sort of breeding ground for for media tech, creative tech. We have a history of um, success within these areas. Um, And I just think it's we can be bigger than fintech. And um, absolutely, we can be... <laughs> you say that with so, much,
0: with so much passion. Yeah. And yet, yeah, yeah, well, you know, we're, yeah. we're sitting literally two floors above stone and chalk. Yeah. I hope they're not listening too <laughs> loud or that they forgive us for that. Yeah. Um, okay, so you, you produced the thesis. The thesis came out in what, the end of 2015? 13. Oh, so it did. It came out in... 20- oh, no,
1: sorry, 2013, 14, 2014.
0: So, okay, the thesis came out in 2014. Yeah. At that point, you... Did it just sit on the sh- shelf or did you say, OK, now it's actually time to start to implement this? How much of a gap was there between mm-hmm. delivering the thesis and you mm-hmm. going, actually, wait a mm-hmm. minute, I've got to create this?
1: Mm. Well, what happened was I, I did the thesis. I said, These, this is what needs to happen. I actually won the award, which was really lovely, for Best Master's Thesis. And I had, a, I was given um, a, a, a small amount of money by the Waking Fright Trust and Um, And that was – it was great to have that recognition because then it gave me a bit of confidence to actually go – and I was also asked to produce a white paper Mm. for afters. and then it was from this that I was invited to go to a few different conferences to present the research. Most people said, what are you talking about? (laughs) So, you know, I just kept having to refine the story. And I must say I'm not comfortable. This is not – there was a reason why I was on the other side of the camera for 30 (laughs) years. You know, I am not someone who – you know, was a journalist who, in that way, you know, even though I did work in journalism, I wasn't, I wasn't really, you know, a front of camera type person. So it was very much out of my comfort zone. But I said, look, this really needs to happen. Someone should do this, and people pointed to me and said, well. You should do it. I was
0: like, really? Well, you've got the passion. You've got the vision. Yeah. You've got the ideas. You have the language. So, yes, we're going to yeah. turn the cameras yeah. on you. So,
1: so then what happened was end of 2013, so end of 2014, these are the findings, do the white paper, present at conferences. This is 2015 now we're into. And then I sort of realised, look, it's too early for an accelerator program because that's what I had sort of advocated for. And I said, but the very last line of the, of the thesis, I think, or the very last line of the white paper, I say... I actually say it's probably too early for an accelerator program. We probably need to do an incubator program first, because we need to grow the talent. We need to grow that the um, you know the understanding of, of what is possible in this space. So twenty fifteen becomes a bit more of R and D, presenting up conferences, realizing it's too early for an accelerator program, but an incubator program is is the better model. That a non profit is the best model to go for, because in that way. People will get on board. People will get on board to support that, and that is really important. Um, and so um, November 2015, uh, the, the, uh, the studio is, is launched as an organisation.
0: Okay, so what is the studio as an organisation?
1: So the studio is a non-profit organisation. Um, we've got a board, we've got an advisory group, and we have more than 20 local and global foundation partners and sponsors.
0: And what's the charter of the studio?
1: The objects of the studio um, are underpinned by education.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's very much its mission is very much to support and foster tech startups and scale ups across the media, entertainment, design, music, games, communications, creative industries.
0: Okay, so now that you have the idea of creating, I guess the foundation to do the education. How does that then become the space where we are right now recording?
1: Okay, so. It took 18 months, but along what happened was um, lots of meetings, lots of just getting out there, meeting people, and, you know, I was just one person. It was literally me sitting at a, mm-hmm. you know, saying this is what we need to do. I had a board. I had different board members that would come and accompany me to meetings, and it I, was I, just... You should be
0: pointing out you have a power board, all right? I mean, yeah. yes, you, you can say hey, you have a board. You have a power board. That's to your credit. I'm just going to say, you know, you bring some of these people into meetings, people will listen to you.
1: Yeah, but we've... The board has changed over time as well, so we've got two original board members, but we've got other board members now. So even that for me was it was a foreign sort of concept to have a board and and to work with that. So that was a real learning curve for me. So for the board members that were there previously, uh, with the, I mean they, we've had fantastic board members. So there's been a lot of support for this, um, and everyone gives gives their, gave their time for free. So I bootstrapped to this um, full time. You know, for for a year and a half, couple of years, pretty yeah. well. Um, and I only really got a wage. Only got a wage last last year, mid mid last year. Um, so so that was challenging as well. So we are a startup for startups. Yeah. I have lived the startup journey. <laughs> I I really was under a lot of financial stress while trying to launch this thing, and it was it was sort of like, what am I doing? But it's like you're on this trajectory, and you know, you can see where you need to go. And it was, and so what ended up happening was almost like this perfect storm of the federal government announced the um, incubator support fund. Um, by that stage, we'd been engaging with with people for eighteen with organisations, industries for eight, industry for eighteen months at that stage, and um, and then the Sydney Startup Hub uh, got, anou- that the, got announced. That was a competitive tender, so it was like all the ducks lined up, and it was very intense, sort of couple of weeks where we had these two massive. Uh, documents that had to get ready that we had to do, right. which we'd been working so towards one anyway. One was for the
0: incubator, one was for the Sydney Startup yeah, Hub. They were
1: both at the same time, and <laughs> of, I thought, of course was, they were. Yeah, of course they were. And but what was wonderful was that the Sydney Startup Hub gave a full stop to the converse, It said to the potential partners and sponsors, "Look, this is this is a real. This is this has to happen. We have to have a commitment by this date." Yeah. Whereas. The incubator fund. It was. It's broad. It's open. So there is no. There is no sort of end date. So it, having those two was really great to have. To have those two, even though it was very difficult, it was. It was really good. Okay, yeah.
0: so you must have been a very happy day when you got good news from both of these projects. Yeah. But then, you, of course, you're like, oh my goodness! Now we actually have to build the space.
1: Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Like that's super. That was amazing. That was. I mean, I was. Yeah, I'd, it was fantastic.
0: Okay, so talk to talk to us about the space. Most of the people yeah. who are listening to the show will not have been to the studio. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm in here yeah. all of the time. Yeah. Tell us about the space.
1: Yeah, well, of course, you know, someone had a great idea that we need to build studios, <laughs> which is, which is you know, a bit of a challenge, but that's okay in a heritage building. But we did it. Yeah. We did it. We, we worked around the heritage ducting and all the other heritage elements, and we've created, uh, so we've got uh, 140 desks, uh, for, and we have—they've um, all got hardwired Ethernet. That's really important.
0: Yes, with a 900 megabit connection, which is very nice for working in media. I need to point that out because I do ship big files around.
1: Yes, and that was really important. That was a non-negotiable. No one else has got that in in the building. We've also got a green screen studio. And we've got a sound studio, which is still being getting its final bits tweaked. Plus, we've got a space that we call our multi-purpose space, because a lot of startups here um, have hardware. They've got AR and VR gear. And touchscreen tables and other bits of tech. So yeah. it's just a room that's. It's they the can toy room, into. I
0: think of it as. So you know, a, yeah. I pop over there, the printer's in there, but then there are like 30 different VR systems and all sorts of fun stuff. And I think that's actually really good because one of the things that that does is it allows people to see what other people are working on, right? Mm. I mean, and that's yeah. kind of the point here. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm always drawn, sort of, Pixar is, if you want to talk mm. creative tech, when they built the building in Richmond, what they did, of course, was that they put the post room. In the lobby, and there was no postal delivery to your desk, so you had to come down every day and get your mail and get your packages, and most Pixar employees would say that that was the most productive time of their day because they'd walk across this vast area, maybe have a cup of coffee, get their mail, but they'd have... Just serendipitous meetings with people, and I can tell you that having been at the studio, it's always like, who's going to walk through the door next? Who am I going to know? Who am I going to learn from? Do you find that that's one of the intended or unintended side effects of the studio? Mm.
1: Oh no, it's absolutely part of why this exists. You need a center of gravity for this sort of activity, and Fishburners, you know, yeah. is a great example of that. Yeah. Um, we used to hold our meetups at Fishburners, and I saw the, you know, the power of that. Um yeah it's it's absolutely right, absolutely so necessary.
0: Where is the studio say in a year or 2 years what's your vision?
1: Okay so we're doing. We've got a lot of activities we're doing besides, you know, launching and building and onboarding new residents, and it's really exciting. We've still got more people coming into the space. Uh, we're going to be full soon. Um, is we're also built. We've also been building a global network. So from day one, we realized, like any good startup, we needed to be global. So we're building reciprocal sort of. Um, a global network of other similar hubs and incubators and accelerators internationally. And we've already got some MOUs set up in place. So these are organisations like a thing called the Hospital Club in London in Covent Garden, which is a big hub for traditional media and entertainment. It's got screening rooms and bars and things like that. It's owned and founded by Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, right. and Dave from the Eurythmics. They're about to open in LA. So they already, we've got two places where studio residents can go and parachute into and connect into a whole network of people. New York Media Center is another one. Cyberport and um, Hong Kong Design Center are another couple of locations that we're working on. So.
0: So this is the Sydney node of a global creative tech community.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Chantal Abouchard, thank you so much for being on this week in Startups Australia. MYOB saves businesses time, helps improve cash flow, gets invoices paid faster, gives real time visibility of profit and loss, and makes payroll easy. With MYOB, you can create, send, and track customized invoices. This is awesome because Australian businesses can wait on average 43 days to get paid. With MYOB, your clients can pay you directly from your invoices. People who use the MYOB online invoicing solution get paid four times faster. MYOB software will let you know when you've been paid, then update the accounts. You don't have to lift a finger. MYOB's online solutions make pay runs quick and easy, ensuring all of your tax and super payments are compliant with the Australian tax office. You can save half a day every month on processing employee pay. MYOB's mobile app means you can create a quote on the job, send invoices straight from the app, and even get paid on the same day you invoice. 1.2 1.2 million businesses in Australia and New Zealand use MYOB. Startups, sole traders, and small businesses, all the way up to companies with hundreds of staff. Whatever your stage or size, MYOB has a solution for you. Twista listeners will get a free 30-day trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will also get $100 in cash. Go to myob.com twista for your free trial today. The biggest change on the internet over the last five years has been the tremendous rise in the amount of streaming video content everyone watches everywhere. The Shanghai subway at peak hour is crammed with folks all very quietly watching streaming video as they make their way home. Ditto Sydney and New York and London and everywhere. It's a streaming world. That creates a lot of new opportunities for the prepared. Two of those prepared are here with us in the studio today. Ricky Sutton and Greg Moore, the co-founders of UVU. That's spelled double O, Double V Double Letter U, who have built a wildly successful creative tech startup and are foundation residents in the studio, a living, breathing example of what's possible in a creative tech hub. Ricky and Greg, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Hey, Thanks, great Mark. To see you. Okay, so tell me about UVU. What do you do?
2: Uh UVU's mission is to embed a contextually relevant video in every article in the world. Um, We did some research a few years ago to look at how people were consuming the news in an increasingly mobile-first world. Um, And it was very clear to us that video was central to people's consumption habits. But when we actually checked how many of the world's tens of millions of articles every day actually had video in them, it was less than 10%. And so what we saw was an opportunity to work uh, with those publishers to put relevant video in every article on the planet, um, which was a pretty big and throaty goal. But that's our job as a startup Um, and uh, we started off by doing deals with broadcasters for video and then deals with publishers to get access to their articles and now we're huge we're in 143 countries and growing
0: How many countries are there? There's only like 160 something right? Well we only care about the 143 we've got (laughs) Fair enough Okay, so when you say contextually relevant, what do you do? Do you have to do some sort of magic secret sauce to match a particular article to a particular piece of video? So, so Greg's the chef on the magic
2: secret sauce, and All I'll right. let him talk to that. But from my perspective, um, you know, what I'm trying to do is to tell the news in greater depth – Um, But to do that, we learned early on that understanding what the article's about, understanding the contextuality of an article and using technology to do that was a lot more complicated than it actually sounds. (laughs) And it sounds pretty complicated. Well, that's what Greg's here for because he's the (laughs) genius. So I'll let him explain how
3: that works. So, yeah, what we do is we take... um, a broad catalogue of video that we've collected, including short form, so the the sort of traditional video that you'd expect to see at the top of an article, but also long form video, so 20 minute to full hour, um, you know, broadcast quality documentary content that might give you a really detailed explanation of a concept like Brexit, or what happened to MH370, or all sorts of pieces of news that you might expect to see. We analyse that video content and therefore have an understanding of all of our pieces of content that we've collected and we also ingest, what is it, two to three hundred at least um, uh, pieces of short form content a day mm-hmm. um, that we're adding to this model. Then we're reading the articles that our publishers are um, writing we're extracting the same meaning out of that using the same models and the same systems so that it's all using a common language um, and then matching those together based on not just that direct um, semantic relevance but also another another set of business rules on top of that around timeliness um, you know context all sorts of additional um, pieces of metadata that we we use in the matching process
0: so this then helps both the publishers of the written content and the publishers of the video content because it makes both of them more relevant. Absolutely, it doesn't. It, it not only makes them
3: more relevant; it makes them both money. So the way that our, our business model works is everybody shares the risk together. So we don't ask for great big um, upfront guarantees from our publishers, nor do we um, give them to our providers. We share the revenue
0: around based on how successful each piece of content is. So, so let's let's go exactly into that. So, what is your business model? I mean, you connect. The publisher, you connect the 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 video source. Or mm-hmm. I guess the broadcaster. What happens in that marriage? How are you making money off the babies that get made?
2: Yes, yeah, so I like the way you put it. Okay, so um, let me. There were four things that really became clear. A billion people were consuming news video every day, and they wanted more.
0: And that's probably going to two million sooner rather than later. It's probably going to four billion
2: actually. Once right. you start to think about Indonesia, China, India, all of these Africa, all these emerging markets coming on board, and we have customers in all of those places, yeah. and so we can see this very rapid. So a billion people want video today uh, or or watch video already today and they want more. And there's another couple of billion coming, he says casually. Um, Then on top of that, what you've got is all of the world's articles are out there at the moment. There's about 26 million topics a day currently being published. Uh, But as I said, about 7% of articles have video in them, even though the public wants them. Right. The problem is there isn't enough video to fill those. At least there wasn't, until we found that all the broadcasters of the world had the video that was needed for those articles. Um, but, but they had no way to be
0: able to sell that to the public. They needed
2: global, ubiquitous, instant distribution, and that couldn't be done through the old school models that they had. So what you then had was supply and demand: supply from the publishers, uh, from the broadcasters, and demand from the public, but no way to match them. And so we built the tech that matched the two together, like a global Tinder for video and articles. <laughs>
0: God, now there's an image. I was thinking it's more like a global two-sided marketplace. It's the same thing. They're both <laughs> beginning with tea.
3: <laughs> we, we have described it as the bow tie uh, with Uvu in the middle, providers on one side and the publishers on the other. They, and we all make them meet in the middle.
2: But there's also another really important piece that's becoming really apparent, which is that the the goal of us doing this is to create a, a um, sustainable future for broadcasters and publishers. Right. And both of them well, are really... Neither struggling. of which are
0: particularly str- guaranteed right now. Well, absolutely. no,
2: absolutely not. And when we started this company or started the thinking of this company, their future looked completely fine. And we told them that there was a danger ahead because if you didn't have uh, massive distribution, um, you know, for a business to work now, The audience has to start with a B. Mm. Success starts with a B. Mm. And we're in a global fight, not a local fight. And, you know, publishers are no longer fighting with the other publisher down the street and the broadcaster isn't in a fight for eyeballs with the newspaper anymore. But their models are still set up for that fight. What we tried to do was to create the opportunity for them to fight with the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, which meant that we had to have global ubiquitous instant distribution and a video in every article in the world. And the outcome of that is that we generate revenue through pre-roll and mid-roll advertising. Um, the uh, the model for that has always been about scale until last year, really, until last year when suddenly truth and facts and fake news and all these things became a thing. We knew they were going to happen. We, we, we wrote about it extensively. And I think, Mark, you've probably seen me and Greg on stage many times talking about this years before it happened. No one actually thought it was real. But the truth was it became really real last year. And the public kind of had the scales removed from their eyes Mm -hmm. for the first time Mm -hmm. to see what a world where facebook and google decide what you get to read and what gets monetized what that future looks like because we started living in that future it's not the future we wanted right and it was clear as day to anybody that's worked in journalism and content for years that you know if you're able to pay to put an article on a site in front of tens of millions of people and it for it not to be checked by anyone Mm -hmm. that's going to have to be dangerous and so we don't want facebook and google to be media companies i know they claim they're not they've taken all our money but they claim not to be media companies we don't want them to be media companies what we because want they
0: to, they can't be held accountable as media no, companies no, if but they we say want they're media not media
2: companies who've done this for a century no. to do that because for the you know i mentioned earlier on that advertising looked like a scale play until last year but it's not anymore it's about brand safety it's about trust it's about scale it's about sustainability it's about
0: honesty It's about I know that I'll trust something from The Guardian or from The New York Times or from The Washington Post because they have that pedigree versus something that's just sort of floated up on a Facebook feed.
2: So let me give you a classic example. So, you know, where these uh, young kids are being rescued from this cave, right, Um, in Thailand and the whole world is paying attention. Everyone's praying for a great outcome here. Okay, people, when those stories happen, okay, people don't run to Facebook. They don't rush to Facebook to find it there, OK? They don't rush to Google to find it there. No, what got they go to BBC is, or... They do. They do. They go to the trusted news brands yeah. when things happen. So if you, when things that are happening that really impact on your heart and your soul means that you run to a media company the media has not lost con- uh, its relationship with the public it just it's- hasn't
0: figured out how to monetize it so let's get down to that so if you are a publisher or if you are a broadcaster and you're in this relationship how much more successful economically does that make you what are you what are you doing for them are you going to be saving them from the abyss are you part of the solution are you all of the solution Um, I'll I'll
2: jump in there. Uh, Look, we have a stated intention uh, that over the next five years we intend to repatriate, and I choose that word very carefully, repatriate $20 billion from Facebook and Google back to the broadcasters and publishers. Now, that sounds like an impossible number except for the fact that it's almost exactly how much they've taken in the last five years. So Facebook and Google have both decided that news and truth is just a little bit too hard for their tech way of viewing the world, um, which means that they no longer want to play in that space, which means the money's back in play right so for the media companies that do own the relationship of trust with the public what they need is the technical solution to get back the money they lost that's what we do so we're there providing a social mission but with a business model behind it
0: gentlemen thank you very much for joining me and blowing my mind just a little bit on this week in startups australia Entrepreneurship. It's the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. With almost half of UTS students wanting to create their own jobs or start their own companies, equipping students with the tools to become entrepreneurs has become critical to their success. Sydney's leadership and strength as Australia's largest startup ecosystem requires a steady, well-supported pipeline of entrepreneurial talent. Working at the heart of this ecosystem, UTS plays a critical role, inspiring and connecting thousands of talented students into that pipeline. UTS is committed to ensuring a thriving and growing base for the startup sector, investing heavily in this future today for Australia's tomorrow. Get in touch. Email startups at uts.edu.au to find out more. In our last episode, we launched a new segment on This Week in Startups Australia asking all of the many incubator and accelerator programs running across the country to spruik their programs to Twista in their own words. This week, we'll hear from Emily Rich, who runs the scale-up program for an obscure little software firm out of the US named Microsoft. Take it away, Emily.
4: All right. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. So my name's Emily Rich. Um, I am the managing director of... Microsoft for Startups here in Australia. So the name of our program is ScaleUp. We are physically located in Sydney. We're on level 10 of the Sydney Startup Hub, but we service Australia and New Zealand. So we have tailored a program that we have the ability to run most of our program online bar a few of the workshops at the start, the middle and the end of the program that we really need people to be on site for. So we do this because the of the types of startups we're targeting. So we're really looking at that later stage Series A plus startups. So we know it's not really realistic for people to relocate at that point in time. Our program has been uh, running for uh, we've never done it (laughs) here. That's (laughs) that's how long it's been running for. So this is our first cohort in Australia, and we have eight global locations. Worldwide. So, our first cohort starting on the 1st of September this year. Applications are open now until the 1st of August. Uh, We just opened them up on the 5th of July. So, if you're interested in applying, once I've told you what it's all about, uh, you can send your pitch deck to scaleupsydney at microsoft.com. It's as easy as that. You just send your pitch deck, and one of the team will get in touch with you. Uh, In terms of you know, who should apply for this program and what are we all about, we are really looking at B2B Series A equivalent startups who are enterprise ready. So the, the scale-up program is designed to offer access to sales, marketing and technical support for that sort of stage startup. Uh, we're really looking and interested in accelerating the success of enterprise ready companies so we give you access to top Microsoft partners customers we make those connections and we also have the beauty of you know being a major tech company that we can soft land you globally anywhere in the world um we do have an immersive program. So it runs for four months, gets you ready to sell at scale. So I'm talking about really large enterprise scale. You've, uh, you're have you probably looking at you know massive enterprise sales into the Fortune 500 and of the likes of those. So Microsoft is connected to 90% of the Fortune 500 companies and that's the type of caliber that we're connecting you to. So we're really getting you ready to be able to sell into those types of people in terms of what we're actually, what are the benefits of doing this? What are the benefits in getting involved in our program? Um, you're getting access to customer relationships. You're getting that worldwide scale that I spoke about before, um, all of the technical expertise. So anywhere you're struggling with scaling your, your stack in any any way, there's, we have an in residence CTO at our reactor space, which is where ScaleUp sits, as well as multiple other tech resources throughout the company globally. Um, It's the same with sales. We have a massive sales team to sell with you, help you sell, and the broader partner ecosystem that Microsoft brings. So we see ourselves in this program as a massive connector in a way for startups to really get the benefits of a massive tech company behind them and to just make sure that you're getting access to those types of things that are going to help you in the best way possible. That's our whole job. So um, we are very fresh in town. We're excited to get started. Uh, as I said, just send your pitch deck along if you're interested in the program. It'll likely be me that will get in touch with you um, initially and then we'll we'll go through the the process from there. In terms of what success looks like for us, we've we've been doing this for many years now, just in different locations. So we have had great success. We've had companies raise massive rounds off the back of it. We've had, uh, you know, companies selling straight into our customers. We've had lots of great co-selling opportunities. Um, one of the latest ones that I've got that I just wanted to share was, a company from our last Berlin cohort called Norris. They're a startup um, that closed three large deals with our, some massive corporates. We connected them to at our corporate access day, and they're going into companies such as Volkswagen and and the likes now. So it's a real game changer for people that really want to get into that high caliber enterprise uh, selling. And don't have a path in where they're to look to connect you in.
0: There are moments when something seems entirely obvious, but only to you. Chantal Abouchar had one of those moments, a moment that led to the creation of the studio. Between revelation and realization lay a lot of hard yards and not a lot of reward. Most people aren't up for that kind of battle. But the few that are, folks like Chantal and Ricky and Greg, those are the ones that change the world. Big thanks to Twista sponsors MYOB and UTS. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to the studio at Sydney's Startup Hub for providing the amazing facility where we record this week in Startups Australia. It's the place for creative tech. Find out more at thestudio.org.au. Thanks to Shantul Abishar, Ricky Sutton, Greg Moore, and Emily Rich for joining us on this episode. Now, we've recently rebuilt and relaunched our website at TWISTartupsAUS.com. It's got everything, all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links, all the stories. So check it out at TWISTartupsAUS.com. We'll be back next week taking a look at what's truly good and how an app can make good better. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.